electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Stocks falling today as we start the holiday-shortened week in the red, extending Friday's losses. Big tech, the biggest culprit. That's the scorecard on Wall Street, but the action is just getting started. Welcome to Closing Bell Overtime. I'm Morgan Brennan with John Fort. Coming up, we've got a big hour of earnings ahead. Palo Alto, Caesars, Diamondback Energy, Toll Brothers, and more are all gearing up to report. We will bring you those numbers and instant analysis. Plus, we're going to hear from the CEO of Global Foundries following the news that his company is going to receive $1.5 billion from the Biden administration to expand U.S. production. He'll join us exclusively later on in the show. As we await those earnings, let's get to today's action with our first guest. Joining us now is Vital Knowledge founder Adam Christofuli. Adam, it's great to have you on. Uh, it, it was an interesting day for the markets, because very risk-off Nonetheless, consumer staples was the one S&P sector that finished higher in the green, largely because some of the retail earnings we got this morning uh, with Walmart. What is the read through there? How does that set us up for more earnings in this hour and through the rest of the week? Yeah, so you saw bias today towards kind of value groups. So staples being a big one, utilities traded decently as well. Um, You know, I think for the staples specifically on the Walmart call, there wasn't as much food disinflation as I think some people feared. Actually, Walmart management on their call noted that disinflation in their fiscal fourth quarter was not as intense as they were modeling. You still did see a pretty notable pullback in prices. So prices are easing in, in multiple categories, but it wasn't as much as anticipated. You also have a big industry conference for the Staples with the Cagney event that's going on. And companies came out and mostly reiterated their guidance. So there wasn't any incremental downward adjustment to their outlook. Um, I think that's a relief, too. You've had some negative staples numbers out of the last couple of weeks, uh, Treehouse Foods on Friday being a big notable one. So the sector is encountering some difficulties. I think today was more just a little bit of a relief rally given some of those developments. Yeah. And of course, a lot of talk about NVIDIA earnings, which are going to cross about 24 hours from now as the last MAG7 name to report huge move in that stock uh, year to date after such a big 2023 we could talk about what that's going to mean for the broader market. I mean, is that really sort of the catalysts for stocks here at these levels this week? Yeah, I think it's a huge event for tech in general. Um, you know, I think you, today you saw the equal weight S&P holding decently versus tech. Tech does seem to be undergoing um, an adjustment, a correction process. It seems to be mostly positioning driven and sentiment. So it's, it's technical, not really fundamental. You know, NVIDIA is still enjoying extremely strong demand. The question is, are expectations impossibly elevated? Um, And I think that's what tech is grappling with. You've had a huge run. News has been very positive, but the group is is very crowded. It's extended price action wise. Um, You know, there's an article in the journal this morning just talking about how NVIDIA has overtaken Tesla as the market's most popular stock. And it's just become, you know, it's become extraordinarily crowded. I think that's the risk. So it's it's more of an adjustment for tech. And obviously, the the capitalization weighted S&P will not be able to withstand a, a further adjustment lower in tech. Okay. But it'll be interesting if, if you do see a further adjustment in tech, 
Ethelweight S&P, I think, should be able to, to hold in well. Okay, hold tight. Uh, Caesars earnings are out. That stock's ticking lower in overtime, about 2.5%. Kate Rogers has the numbers. Kate. Hi, John. Yeah, let's take you through the quarter. So Caesars Entertainment revenues miss here $2.83 billion for the quarter versus estimates of $2.85 billion. Uh, adjusted, or excuse me, a, a loss here of $0.34. Cents. Now, the consensus was for a $0.04 cent loss, but we are not comparing that Uh because there's a big disparity there. Vegas revenues, $1.09 billion versus estimates of $1.11 billion. Adjusted EBITDA here, $930 million uh, versus $943 million. Vegas adjusted EBITDA, also a miss here, $489 million versus estimates of $501 million. The company's CEO said these results were driven by a 28% year-over-year increase in Caesars digital net revenue that generated a 10% adjusted EBITDA margin in the quarter. But as you can see, the stock is moving lower by about 3.5%. John, back over yeah. to you. Yeah, a whole, a whole point lower while you were describing what was happening there. Kate, thanks. Adam, back to you. I actually want to ask about uh, Walmart here, which reported this morning, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, let's see, Roth MKM points out that their ad revenue at about $3.5 billion is catching up to their ad spend at around $4.3 billion. So given the inflationary environment that we're still sort of in, based on the latest numbers that we've gotten in, the strength of Walmart as a platform, what's the read on, on how companies are handling uh, the economy? Yeah, I think, you know, these enormous companies, they talk a lot on their call about share gain. So they're gaining share not only within their core demographic, but they're, they continue to move into upper income demographics as well. And so it was really a volume driven report. If you look at kind of their average ticket, it fell, um, but transaction volume increased. So they're doing they're gaining a lot of share. Online is doing well for them. And now they're this advertising business, which they bolstered today with that acquisition. Um, you know, that's a high margin revenue stream. Uh, and that's something that's helping their their gross margins. So gross margins and operating margins were both pretty healthy at Walmart. So I think it's a share gain in the core retail business and then bringing in some of these more ancillary, higher margin revenue streams that's bolstering margins and earnings. Um, and I think it'll be interesting as we get further into the other uh, the other January and retailers like Target and the dollar stores, um, if that share gain at Walmart is showing up in those other companies uh, on the negative side. Okay. want to point out Palo Alto Network's results are out. Uh, we are going through them, and we'll bring them to you as soon uh, as we have a sense of them. That stock is lower by more than 12% right now in overtime. So uh, we'll see what that's about. Meantime, uh, Adam, tell me about uh, the effect of rates on CoStar and housing, uh, particularly not, not just housing, but uh, commercial real estate and office, because that's resurfaced as a question people are asking more. Yeah, it's interesting. You obviously had that, that recent New York uh, Community Bank report, which was, which was really bad and kind of brought that back to the surface, the whole commercial real estate aspect, uh, the whole commercial real estate risk. But, you know, from look, going back to the banks, the bank earnings season in, in January, you know, the numbers were relatively decent. And then we actually just had CBRE, which is one of the largest leasing companies on the planet for commercial real estate. And they had a relatively sanguine outlook as far as just leasing activity is concerned. Um, you still have a lot of stranded buildings that aren't economical and that will probably never recover these kind of class B and C properties. Um, but overall, leasing for commercial real estate does seem to have turned a corner. At least it's stabilizing. Um, and so it'll be interesting to kind of see what the post-star messaging is on that. But it does seem like New York community is a somewhat isolated risk or issue. 
um, in overall leasing activity for commercial real estate is, again, it's yeah. stabilizing at least. It doesn't seem to be deteriorating any further. Okay. We got Palo Alto earnings out. Kate Rogers has those numbers. Kate. Hi again, Morgan. So here, a beat on the, on the top and bottom lines. Uh, EPS uh, adjusted $1.46. That's higher than the estimate of $1.30 per share. Uh, Q2 revenues, $1.98 billion, a little bit higher than the estimate of $1.97 billion for the quarter. Uh, the company, though, giving some guidance here. It sees its Q3 revenues in a range of $1.95 billion to $1.98 billion. That is a bit light compared to the $2.04 billion uh, that analysts were looking for here. And as you can see, the stock is moving lower by just under 13% now. Back over to you. All right, Kate, thank you. Don't miss the Palo Alto CEO on Mad Money tonight. Adam, I want to get your thoughts on this because cybersecurity in general has just been, these stocks have been on fire lately. As we've seen the threat landscape continue to grow and evolve. And in an election year, uh, it, it, it seems almost parabolic in terms of what the demand is for companies like Palo Alto. So perhaps a little surprising to see revenue for Q3, the current quarter, come in a bit soft. No, definitely. And Palo Alto is the marquee name in the space. So it'll be interesting to dig down into the details. I would just note that they've had some evolution in the last couple of quarters in some of the metrics that they emphasize uh, or that they encourage investors to watch versus kind of just reported revenue um, or billings even. So it'll be interesting to kind of look through some of the details and to see if there's been an un- a shift in underlying demand for them. But, you know, it's been a very mixed January and earnings season so far. Um, you know, you had Cisco and Deere cut guidance. AMAT was very strong. Walmart was decent today. Home Depot was a little bit more mixed. And now you have this Palo Alto disappointment. So we get analog devices tomorrow morning and then NVIDIA. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how these companies come in. But, you know, for Palo Alto, like you said, um, Cybersecurity has been a very strong area of the market. Uh, risk factors continue to go up every single day. Yeah. Uh, and this is, like I said, the marquee name in the group. Well, at these levels in overtime, Palo Alto is back at early mid-January levels. Meantime, over to energy, Chesapeake Energy and Diamondback earnings are out. Pippa Stevens has those numbers. Pippa. Hey, John. Well, Chesapeake beating EPS estimates, earning 131 adjusted for the quarter against estimates for 73 cents. The company also did lower its prior CapEx guidance for 2024 and said it expects its merger with Southwestern to target. It's targeting a closing date of the second quarter that, of course, would create the largest U.S. gas producer. Moving over to Diamondback, that company beating top and bottom line estimates, earning 474 adjusted uh, ahead of the 466 expected revenue coming in at 2.23 billion. That that stock has been on a tear since the company announced its deal to buy Endeavor uh, unchanged here after hours. Morgan. All right, Pippa Stevens, thank you. Teladoc earnings are out. Bertha Coombs has those numbers. Bertha. We're going to mixed quarter from Teladoc on the bottom line, posting a smaller loss of 17 cents a share versus an expectation of a 21 cent loss. But on the top line coming up short, coming in at 661 million in revenues, the street had been looking for 671.4 million. Guidance is also below expectation. You can see shares are down. Uh, The for the first quarter, it is predicting a loss of between 45 and 55 cents a share. The street had been looking for 43 cents. And revenues, 630 to 645 million. In terms of membership, also coming up short. For Teledoc Teled- uh, Health Integrated Care, 90.3 members is what the street was looking for. They came in with 89.6 million. As far as better health, this is the online therapy, which the company has really been 
been trying to tout. They are one of the largest advertisers on podcasts behind Amazon in order to tout this BetterHelp therapy. Uh, it came in with 425,000 members. The revenues there also came in, coming in a little bit below, and it's chronic care management, 1.15 million members. The street had been looking for 1.18 million members. Uh, so overall, coming up short on a number of uh, estimates there. Back over to you. Okay, Bertha Coombs, thanks. Stock's down 10% right now. Adam, want to get your thoughts on uh, the parade of reports we just put in front of you. And perhaps I'll start with energy, because what's so notable about both of those names uh, that Pippa just broke down is, is they're both involved and engaged in M&A right now. How much does that speak to the current energy dynamics? How much does it speak to a broader market dynamic, especially on a day where you saw another deal? You saw the Capital One Discovery fi Discover Financial deal. Well, I guess that was announced Monday night, but you saw that play out in the market, too. In general, it seems like there's an uptick here. No, absolutely. There's definitely been an uptick in M&A, and I suspect you're going to see that going forward. Um, you know, I think for energy specifically, you know, you're having, uh, especially for U.S. natural gas prices, are at, at multi-year lows right now. So I think companies are looking to consolidate, bring out efficiencies on the operating expense front and the capital expenditure front. You know, you have a little bit of regulatory uncertainty that's been injected into U.S. natural gas recently, where the White House put a moratorium on approving new export facility construction. That won't have a near-term effect. Um, but I think it kind of does create a little bit of uncertainty over the next, you know, five to 10 years about what the outlook for exports will be. Um, but I think companies, you know, in energy, most acutely, it's it's a question of finding synergies and efficiencies. Um, and I think in a lot of other industries, that's that's going to be dominating or motivated M&A as well. Mm. You know, the regulatory environment, though, is, is relatively inhospitable to some of these deals. You already saw a couple of uh, key people in Washington come out in opposition to that Capital One deal. There was a report today that the Kroger-Albertsons deal will be sued next mm -hmm. week to see the blockage. So, you know, these companies, as they consider M&A, um, you know, it's a much different regulatory landscape than it was even just a couple of years ago. And I think that factors in as well. All right. Adam Christofuli, thank you. And as we get ready to head to Breda, I want to point out Palo Alto Networks again. That is down uh, considerably around 13 percent. The EPS guidance was also a miss, a buck 25. The street was looking for a buck 29. And the full year revenue and EPS guidance also missed. The street was looking for 551. The midpoint is 550. And the revenue guide, the top of the range is 8 billion. The street was looking for closer to 8.2. We're going to hear from the former Palo Alto CEO, Lane Bess, with his first take on those numbers after this break. Plus, we're going to have more earnings coming from Toll Brothers. Overtime's back in two. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. 
Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. As we've been showing you, Palo Alto Network's under some serious pressure in overtime, down a little more than 12.5% at the moment. Joining us now is Lane Best, former CEO of Palo Alto. He's now CEO at cybersecurity firm Deep Instinct. Lane, to put this into perspective, uh, before this report, Palo Alto had more than doubled in the past 12 months. So, you know, a little yes. 12, 13 percent here and there isn't going to hurt too much for people who have been in the name for a while. But I wonder what you think this moment represents for cybersecurity, yeah. which is one of those have to haves, but where the valuations have gotten mm, lofty. Yes, yes. Well, first of all, I'm in Palo Alto from the beginning, so uh, I still remain bullish. Um, as you've pointed out, the market has priced a lot of the cyber stocks to perfection, and now they're going to have to perform, and the slightest uh, deviation from expectations could it impact them. But the truth is, this SAT category continues to increase, and if you look at the sales pipelines in Palo Alto and in my former company, Zscaler, they're burgeoning because of the demand. But I believe the game's going to need to change a little bit. Um, in the past, I think four years ago, I was on this show and I recommended that acquisitions for growing the bundle of services that uh, the platform players such as Palo Alto and Zscaler offer needed to expand. Now they need to up the game on AI. And that's going to be the next thing that's going to lift these companies to the next level. Okay, well, let me go back to that M&A point, though. Has enough of that happened? Because you talk about the, uh, the platform companies, Palo Alto, Zscaler, yes. I throw CrowdStrike in there as well, which has done amazingly well. But I expect all of those stocks, or both of them that aren't Palo Alto, could get some blowback uh, from these results. And so might some smaller names that might be targets. That's true. But again, the strategy for those platform players you mentioned is to go broad in terms of their coverage in all of the potential points of vulnerability. It's a bundling strategy. So a large part of their growth to this point has come out of providing more and more services to cover more of the vulnerability threat uh, vectors. Uh, now they're going to have to go deeper. And I do think the acquisitions will continue. But I do believe they need, need to be more acquisitive in the AI area. Not all machine learning, which everybody claims they have, is the same. And that's what's going to be needed to fight the generative AI threats that we're going to be seeing in the next few years. So I would say that they're going to have to continue to acquire, but they're going to have to go deeper into value that's going to prevent threats, not detect and help remediate. They have to get into a prevention stance. Um, certainly the stock is moving lower because of the miss on guidance, both current quarter and, and, and full year here. Um, but when you look at non-GAAP operating margin, it actually grew 580 basis points year over year to 29% uh, in this last quarter. When you talk about going deeper on AI, what is that going to mean in terms of investing to achieve those capabilities? Yeah, well, again, it's about developing the same kind of AI and technology which we use at Deep Instinct called deep learning. And deep learning... AI is going to allow them to essentially leverage their platforms even greater and get more wallet share um, and more um, uh, uh, dollars per customer as they go further into the market. Both of these platform players, or all three of them, Palo Alto, Zscaler, and CrowdStrike have enormous customer bases that require and need continued attention. So the expansion of the product line, but more importantly, being able to leverage technology such as what we do at Deep Instinct called deep learning will help them now 
prevent. The call for from the boardroom has been how do we detect and remediate these threats? But the idea now is going to be how do we predict and prevent these threats? It's the only way that these companies are going to be of meaningful value to customers as generative AI uh, threats uh, heighten. Okay. Lane, thanks for joining us on the heels of these earnings results. I should note shares of Palo Alto are down double digits right now and Zscaler and CrowdStrike are both trading lower in overtime and sympathy too. Well, solar edge earnings are out. Pippa Stevens has those numbers. Pippa. Hey, Morgan. The stock tumbling 16% on very weak guidance, but starting here with the fourth quarter, solar edge reporting a smaller than expected adjusted loss of 92 cents per share revenue coming in at 316 million. That missed expectations and was also down 56% year over year. But it really does seem to be this guidance for Q1 revenue. They see between 175 and 215 million. That was well short of the 406 million that Wall Street was looking for. They also see uh, margins, non-GAAP gross margins, to be within a range of negative 3% to positive 1%. That compares to 3.3% during the fourth quarter. The company said that after record installations during the first half of last year, there was a shift in the second half of the year thanks to higher rates and lower power prices. Morgan? All right. Pippa Stevens, thank you. Shares down 18% right now. Coming up. One and a half billion dollars. That's how much the Biden administration is awarding to chip company Global Foundries as part of the Chips Act grants. And there's more attached to that, too. We're going to hear exclusively from the company's CEO after this quick break. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Overtime. The U.S. government announcing its first major award from the CHIPS Act. It's actually the third, but it's the largest by dollar amount to date. It is giving Global Foundries $1.5 billion to expand and create new manufacturing capacity at three facilities, two that exist, one that's coming online in New York and Vermont. Joining us now to discuss in a CNBC exclusive is Global Foundries CEO, Tom Caulfield. Tom, we were just speaking to you a week ago. I asked you about this a week ago. Um, So the fact that we're getting... This news today, it's $1.5 billion from the Commerce Department in grants. It's another $1.6 billion in federal loans. And then there's funding coming from New York State for some of this investment as well. How meaningful is this to Global Foundries? How quickly can you bring all of this production capability online? Well, for, first, uh, thanks for ha- having me and for joining in our celebrations. It's a big, a big deal. This is a big deal for Global Foundries. This is a big deal for our semiconductor industry. This is a big deal for our our global teams in upstate New York and Vermont and, and the rest of the world. Uh, so your question is, you know, how does this capacity come online? Let's talk about the three elements of our CHIPS funding. Uh, the first one is to expand within our existing four walls in Fab 8 and Malta, New York, meaning to create new capacity there as well as more differentiated uh, technology platforms that we have around the world. So when our customers truly want to source in a resilient global footprint, we can give them solutions in our facilities around the world that are the same. The second investment that will come later in time is to actually 
double the scale of our Fab 8 facility in, in Malta, New York. And that will come as our industry rebounds and the demand from our customers is there. Look, it's about what you believe. And I certainly believe by the end of this decade, our industry will double and we will need that capacity. Okay. And then the third leg of this investment is taking our, uh, our, our facility, 200 millimeter facility in Vermont and modernizing it. That's a fab that's been online for almost 60 years. And we're gonna modernize that. We're gonna bring in new technologies, things in the advancement of wideband gap materials that allow for high power uh, capabilities as well as high frequency communications. Yeah. I know in my interviews uh, with the Commerce Secretary and some of my own reporting uh, over the months that so much of the funding decisions that are being made through the CHIPS Act is happening through a national security lens, either directly or indirectly. I, looking at the press release, I mean, there are so many people quoted here from Lisa Sue at AMD to Jim Takelet at Lockheed, General Motors, um, Qualcomm. I could, I could go down the list here. In terms of the types of semiconductors that you're going to be manufacturing, why they are crucial to national security and they, how they fit into the broader ecosystem at a time when we are continuously talking about supply chain uh, normalization and realization coming out of the pandemic. Yes, I think the, the breadth of that uh, list of supporters is, is really representative of the breadth of all the markets we serve, including aerospace and defense. You know, Global Foundries is designated as a trusted foundry for the U.S. government to make sure that we can produce the most sensitive semiconductors for their use. But I think what you're really seeing here is what we call the essential chips, uh, serving a broad range of markets from secure pay transactions in smart mobile devices uh, to radar in cars. And this is the, represents about 70% of the semiconductors required to fill our lives with all the electronic uh, components that create better engagement and, and, the, and the speed of our economy. Mm. Uh, you'll see later in time, I'm sure, um, some of this funding now going to the high-speed digital compute for data centers and some of the other players that participate in that space. Okay. But the pervasiveness of all the markets we address is really what this speaks to today and those endorsements you just uh, spoke about. So, Tom, I'm going to ask the question that some taxpayers certainly have. I, I know certainly because it's been in my inbox with the cost of capital where it is right now, what would you have done without this money, you know, that, that, you're, that, you're, uh, that you're able to do now? So what, what are you doing more quickly? What are you going to do now that you wouldn't have been able to do before? Look, th this, this money really should be treated as an investment, not as an incentive. Uh, what the whole purpose of the CHIPS bill was to make sure that the capital investments companies like GF, to, GF have to make to expand capacity, we can do it in a globally competitive way. Other regions of the world already recognize how important semiconductors are and give these types of co-investments. By and large, most of the money that will come into building these facilities will come from GF. What this, this type of funding does is it creates the ability for us to create globally competitive capacity and to do it right here in the U.S., consistent with what we do around the rest of the world in our global footprint. Okay. Sounds like you're saying you would have built it somewhere else. No. Okay. I would say that we always have to make the best, best, best use of our capital. And we already have investments in the U.S., so we didn't get, you know, we, we did that on our own most of the time. Tom Caulfield of Global Foundries, thanks for joining us. Thank you.
Time for our CNBC News update with Bertha Coombs. Bertha? Hey, John. Prosecutors in Missouri announced this afternoon two adults have been charged with murder in last week's shooting at the Kansas City Super Bowl parade. The charges come after two juveniles were detained last week for gun-related charges and resisting arrest. The shooting left one dead and injured 22 others. A bankruptcy judge ruled former Trump advisor Rudy Giuliani can appeal the $146 million verdict for being found liable of defaming two elections workers in Georgia, but only if he uses pre-approved donors to cover the legal costs. The ruling comes after Giuliani filed for bankruptcy in December following a judge's order that he start making those payouts. And the college football playoff board unanimously approved today what's being called the 5 plus 7 model. It will guarantee the five highest rated conference champions will be included in the expanded 12-team playoff field this year. The next seven highest ranked teams will round out the 12. 5, 7, 12. All right. There you go. Yeah, I'm sure somebody's going to find a way to be upset about that, Bertha. <laughs> thank you. Stocks, meanwhile, finishing the day lower to start the week. So what should investors be watching more closely, the macroeconomic picture or the micro earnings reports? Morgan Stanley's Lisa Shalit is going to give us her playbook next. And shares of Walmart closing the day up more than 3% after its earnings this morning. Analytics firm Amplitude which lists Walmart as a client, just reporting earnings here in overtime. The stock is down as revenues came in toward the lower end of the range. Guidance was stronger and uh, gross margin stronger though. I spoke with the CEO about what their data showed about Walmart customers. We actually work with Walmart and one of the interesting things that they shared with us was that Customers who buy omni-channel, so both in-store and online, spend up to three times more on average than customers who just buy in-store. Overtime, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Overtime. Toll Brothers earnings are out. Diana Olick has the numbers. Hi, Diana. Hey, Morgan. Yeah, beat on the top and bottom line. We got EPS at $2.25 a share versus estimates of $1.78. Revenue of $1.93 billion versus estimates of $1.85 billion. Q2 deliveries were way up. Uh, they had 1,927 homes priced at an average of $1 million. That's slightly lower than we saw in the previous quarter. But remember, mortgage rates still very high. Uh, CEO Doug Yearly said there's, quote, solid demand. Net signed contracts for the quarter were up 40% in units and 42% in deliveries uh, in dollars. Sorry, 40% in units, 42% in the dollar volume. There was no mention, though, of the change in mortgage rates that we've seen over the last couple of months. So we saw rates come down in November and December. That obviously helped them a lot. The builders can also buy down the mortgage rates, which is why they're doing so much better on sales than existing homes. But um, rates are back up again. Nothing in the release, at least. We'll be looking to the conference call to see if there's anything on that. But again, a nice beat on the top and bottom line. We also got CoStar, another beat for them. 33 cents a share EPS uh, versus estimates of 32%. Revenue came in at 640 million versus estimates at 634.2 million. Um, they, uh, they did say that they, uh, 
they, they're real estate and technical and analysis firm, but they ha own things like homes.com and apartments.com. And an interesting quote that I want to read to you from the release says, our commercial information and marketplace business grew revenue by 14 percent in 2023 in the worst commercial real estate market in decades and delivered 40 percent profit margins, our highest profit levels ever. So a big beat for both CoStar and Toll. Back to you guys. All right. Well, that stock is now CoStar off its lows, but still down around 4% in overtime. Diana, thanks. Uh, stocks, meanwhile, lower to start the shortened trading week here to share her outlook on the market and where she sees opportunity. Lisa Shallot, Morgan Stanley Wealth Management's chief investment officer. Lisa, I wonder, first of all, the, the role of bellwethers in this market. We can look over uh, at Palo Alto Networks now down close to 14% in overtime. Uh, NVIDIA reports tomorrow. What kind of an impact are stocks like that having on uh, valuations and sentiment? Well, I, I think we have to separate, you know, the index from uh, the average stock, right? So one of the points that we've been making for a long time is that the S&P 500 is a market cap weighted index. We know it's been super concentrated in those mag seven, including companies uh, like NVIDIA, and that index uh, is extraordinarily sensitive to those uh, uh, cohorts, and it's extraordinarily sensitive to interest rates. On the flip side, uh, we've got the average company is much more fairly valued, uh, and so I think that the read across uh, for you know things like NVIDIA, which has been a very idiosyncratic story, uh, is actually quite low for the broad uh you know, fraction of the market. So th does that mean you're more paying attention to equal weighted uh, indexes versus the broader index, given the, the heavy influence and increasingly heavy influence that the large names have or no? Yeah, 100 percent. We're looking at the other 493 names. And as I noted, they're fairly valued. Uh, our best guess is that many of those companies uh, are going to have the opportunity if, in fact, uh, the economy stays robust, if, in fact, the Fed begins to cut rates in the second half, uh, to see some of their fundamentals reaccelerate. And that's really not uh, built into their current stock prices, whereas, you know, some of the uh, MAG-7 certainly have ebullient expectations associated with them already. So from micro to macro, I mean, the U.S. economic growth, it's been so strong, so much stronger than everybody expected. How real is the risk that this is going to reignite or at least entrench inflation above 2% and push off or delay the Fed's ability to cut rates? And I ask that knowing that we've just seen a number of reports that showed um, a little more inflationary pressure than the market was hoping for. Yeah, so as you may know, Morgan Stanley's been in the camp that uh, that the inflation uh, trajectory is going to be quite lumpy uh, and that this idea that we were going to rapidly uh, get to the 2% target, that we were rapidly going to see six or seven Fed rate cuts was probably overly optimistic. And so our best guess is that you have to understand that if the economy is resilient, if unemployment uh, is uh, kind of anchored near 50-year lows, if wage growth is going to continue to hover between 4 and 5%, that the potential for inflation, especially if fiscal spending continues at the rate that it's been going, uh, that inflation may be with us for quite a while longer, and the Fed is going to have to be patient.
Is the U.S. still the place to put your money to work right now, or are there other markets that are compelling? Uh, we've been in the camp that says, uh, in addition to the 493 names uh, below, you know, the, the the top decile of the index, uh, that there are some interesting plays outside the United States, given uh, that valuations there are much better, uh, and it looks like they're at a different point in their economic cycle. So our best guess is that emerging markets uh, actually rebound into the second half of the year. It may be that European stocks that have proven pretty resilient here uh, to start the year uh, are going to benefit from an ECB that gets their rate cutting uh, program going by the middle of the year. And Japan is really, uh, we believe, in the mid mid innings uh, of a new bull market uh, that's really been associated with the revaluation of the Japanese yen okay. uh, and the restructuring uh, of their focus on shareholder value. So if you had to give us uh, two or three specific countries, then uh, you mentioned Japan, but uh, outside of just broad emerging markets, what would you say? We'd be in Brazil, Mexico and India right now. All right. Lisa Shalit, great to have you on. And by the way, since I don't think you've been on since this news crossed, congratulations on becoming the chair of the firm's Global Investment Committee over at Morgan Stanley, too. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Well, home builder Toll Brothers moving higher right now after reporting beats on the top and bottom lines. And joining us now is Ivy Zellman of Zellman and Associates. Ivy, I wonder what this environment means for the home builders, particularly since they've been subsidizing um, mortgage rates for so long. How long can that continue? Well, first, I'd say that Toll Brothers, you know, really blew it away. I mean, they beat earnings by 25 percent and they raised guidance modestly. It was a very strong quarter. Their orders were more than double than what we were expecting. And what we've heard from the builders that have reported so far this quarter is they're actually pulling back on incentives. We saw today that TriPoint reported earnings and they indicated that their incentives were lower in January than they were to end the fourth quarter. So I think what we're seeing is the market accelerating into spring and therefore there might be even a pullback in the need to buy down mortgage rates given the strength of the overall market right now. Now, does that picture change if we start to get more existing home inventory onto the market, which has not happened and has been driving so much of the interest in newly built homes? No, it's a good point. Actually, that definitely is a factor that we um, flag with to our investors that we have seen so much market share growth for the new home market. So if we do see an acceleration in listings, that might um, put a little bit of pressure on the builder's ability to push price that they're starting to now um, in some communities start raising prices again. You know, it's interesting because we've seen the cost to actually build homes start to fall on certain metrics. But the cost to actually acquire the land, the lots, has grown. How are home builders like Toll navigating that? You know, one of our concerns is that the builders right now, because of the, the new land that they're acquiring, has continued to see inflation, pretty substantial inflation, frankly, mid to high single double digits or mid single to low double digits. And so without strong pricing pressure, they're going to see more um, compression on margins in 24 and 25. So unless we really see a big pickup in price appreciation, we're going to see margins um, come under pressure. But keep in mind that margins are still well above sort of normalized margins right now. So I think that for them, they're still feeling pretty good about their ability to grow earnings and provide double, double digit returns to investors. 
So that is part of our forecast is to assume that margins come under pressure. Yeah. I mean, along those lines, just looking at, I guess, one of your recent notes here, uh, you talk about gross margin normalization becoming more widely accepted. Is that what you mean by that? Yeah, I think that the investment community is kind of recognized that the land is going to be an impediment. And unless we see prices, you know, pick back up, that that's a part of what they're incorporating into their valuation outlooks. And I think that right now we don't expect the stocks to really take off from here. They had uh, an incredible 23 in terms of performance. But we do think that they, they could provide investors selectively 10 to 15 percent returns. And that's really what we're guiding. And we have some select names we're recommending, Toll being one of them. Um- Ivy, assuming we do get higher rates for longer, what's your model for how long we have to wait before existing homeowners kind of throw in the towel and say, all right, I'm going to downsize even though rates are high, even though maybe inventories have still been low and I'm not getting exactly what I want or, hey, I've got to move. So, you know, I'm going to have to do this. Just bite the bullet. When does that happen? I think it's starting. You know, I think you're starting to see incremental sequential increases in new new listings. And I think that those people that have been waiting, they're kind of getting more comfortable with the idea that they're going to have to have a rate that's closer to six and a half, seven. Now that we've had rates that um, are down from what approached eight, I think they're starting to appreciate that if they want to make a lifestyle change, they're looking to relocate. Um, it's happening. It's just not happening at um a significant sort of skyrocketing pace. So I, I think it's going to be a slow um, reacceleration listings, but it is happening right now. Yeah, of course, it's going to make this spring home buying and selling season all the more important for us to watch. Ivy Zellman, thanks for joining Thank us. So much. We hope you'll come back soon. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. We have a news alert on Citigroup. Pippa Stevens has the details. Hey, Morgan. Well, City announcing just now that it is raising CEO Jane Frazier's pay for 2023 by 6.1% to a total of $26 million. That includes a $1.5 million base salary and then $24.5 million in a total incentive award. This comes one week after Goldman Sachs said that CEO David Solomon's compensation would rise 24% for 2023. Shares of City ticking slightly higher. Morgan? All right, Pippa Stevens, thank you. Up next, BHP shares slipping after the miner reported earnings yesterday. I caught up with the CEO of that company. Find out why he's not too worried about the weak economic data out of China. That's coming up next. Welcome back. BHP is the world's largest publicly traded miner. It's a major supplier of industrial commodities like iron ore, coal, and copper. It reported first-half earnings yesterday, with revenue growing 6%, underlying profit beating, and an interim dividend of $0.72 per share. That was lower than a year ago, but also better than expectations. Ahead of the report, BHP took a non-cash impairment charge of $5.6 billion related to both the 2015 Samarco Dam disaster in Brazil and its nickel business. Nickel is BHP's smallest unit, but prices have fallen almost 50% since the start of 2023 amid a supply glut from Indonesia, causing miners, including BHP, to idle some production. It's something investors have been very focused on. I asked BHP CEO Mike Henry for his outlook and whether waning demand for EVs is playing a role. No, so, so actually on the demand front, things have been at the high end of the range that we had estimated, and, uh, and, and in large part because of the electric vehicle thematic 
Um, and so we believe that the demand outlook remains uh, strong. This is really a supply side uh, um, consideration. There's just been so much investment that's gone into what's actually a lower grade of nickel. Uh, but there's been a lot of investment in that in Indonesia, and that's been, meant more supply on the market. There's also been a, a change to the way that this commodity gets traded um, in at the, uh, the you know the key exchange globally, where that lower quality nickel is now impacting the price of higher quality nickel, which is the which is the class one nickel that BHP produces. Understood. Um, in terms of metallurgical coal, and also in terms of iron ore, when we, when we talk about steel making, what is your outlook uh, for global demand, especially at a time where there's a lot of focus on China, some of the weaker than expected macro data we've seen come out of that country, uh, and challenges that are ongoing with the property market? So here is the, um, uh, the interesting thing. Um, over the course of the past 12 months, notwithstanding weaker than uh, anticipated growth in China, the sectors of the Chinese economy that have been performing strongly have been steel intensive. So we've seen the fifth year running of over a billion tons of steel demand and production in China. That's meant healthy demand for iron ore and prices have held up better than most people had anticipated. Our expectation is that in the year ahead, we're likely to see another year of a billion tons plus of, of, uh, of steel demand. And we could say the same thing about other commodities. Copper demand was stronger out of China in the past year than, mo than most people had anticipated. We expect a bit of recovery in, the, in, in, in other economies in the year ahead. Uh, that coupled with some of the supply side factors in, in copper where there's been more disruption to uh, supply on the part of other players in the market than people were forecasting are likely to mean the market will be in a bit better balance. And that should provide some price support in, in, in copper as well. Iron ore is BHP's biggest profit driver, but the company is also ramping copper production, as you just touched on there, developing a major potash, pro potash project in Canada, so fertilizer that will begin to come online in 2026. Henry says the focus is on commodities that will benefit from big, long-term, quote-unquote, mega trends, including population growth, urbanization, industrialization, electrification, and others. We're going to get other mining majors, Rio Tinto and Glencore, reporting overnight tonight as well. But for the full interview with BHP, go to CNBC Overtime's LinkedIn page, as well as to CNBC.com. You know, China is just a huge producer and consumer of all of these industrial commodities. That will continue, as Henry talked about, but transitioning from a main driver of growth in commodities to a steady source of demand. And other markets like, perhaps unsurprisingly, India, starting to pick up pace. So are these results good or seen as good on the street? The stock was down almost 4% today and down for the year. Yeah, stock was down weaker than we had seen you know, a year ago. We've got a, a macro environment that's been a little more uncertain and uh, some slowing growth from a, from a global standpoint. But some of these results in general, better than expectations. Keep in mind, ahead of the results last week, they had um, you know, filed these non-cash impairment charges as well. So perhaps investors continuing to digest that too. But overall, the dividend, I think, better than expected, though lower than a year ago. Okay. Up next, your earnings scorecard reports hitting the tape fast and furious all hour. We've got a roundup of all the key numbers every investor needs to watch. After the break, Overtime will be right back. Let's have a look at some key movers here in Overtime. Palo Alto Network shares still sinking, down now about 19%. The company beat on the top and bottom lines, but guidance was weak across the board, top and bottom lines. CoStar Group shares lower after the guidance came in weaker than expected. Toll Brothers, however, is higher after the home builder beat 
on the top and bottom lines. You can see that up 3%. Looking ahead to tomorrow, it's going to be about those NVIDIA earnings, which are going to bring you live right here in overtime. The stock closed down 4% today, down 1%, 1.5% here in overtime. And Morgan, this, this move in Palo Alto especially um, significant to me because of the sympathy it's getting from CrowdStrike mm. down seven and a third percent right now and Zscaler uh, down, what, six and a half percent. I mean, those would be big moves if they had actually reported, yeah. but they didn't. But they didn't. And it's, it's worth noting that we tend to see this when one of the cyber names, because they've had such big runs, when one of the cyber names does miss, um, you do tend to see the whole group trade in unison, but not necessarily after hours like we're seeing right now. I think that's very telling to your point. NVIDIA, obviously going to be one to watch. You noted it during the commercial break. We're seeing shares uh, exchanged, quite a number of them, uh, ahead of that report. A lot of positioning ahead of that report. Very high hopes uh, for that company, especially given the fact that we've seen the company up more than 40% since the start of the year after a 240% surge in 2023. Nobody Nobody doesn't expect strong earnings growth tomorrow. The question is, how much is already priced into the stock ahead of time? The options market is expecting an 11% move up or down, up or down in NVIDIA. And this is a nearly $2 billion market cap stock. So that's like 200 trillion, uh, two, two trillion, two yeah. trillion. It's like a $200 billion uh, move. <laughs> Yeah, we also get Fed minutes tomorrow. Uh, stocks finish the day lower today, though. That's going to do it for us here at Overtime. Fast money starts now. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.